Lord, all of us who know you as our Savior long for the day when we can look at your face in glory, that we can get a true vision of just who you really are. Lord, we see glimpses of you in the Gospels. We see glimpses of you in the Old Testament. But, Lord, to see you in all your glory, what a great day that will be. And today, Lord, as we look at this little passage in Revelation, we actually do get a glimpse of your glory, a a vision of who you are as Almighty God. Lord, there's no way that I can adequately address this text, Lord, and, and help everyone in here to visualize just who you are, but your word speaks for itself. And Lord, John does such a great job here sharing his vision of who you are. And so, Lord, I ask that you take uh, our spiritual eyes today and open them wide, Lord, so that we can see you and, and uh, Lord, just honor you. Just the idea that, that uh, when we see who you are, to know that you came here to die for our sins, You created us, Lord, knowing that we would fail and fall, and yet you still died for us, Lord. Uh, What mighty love that is. Lord, we we thank you for the grace that you give us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for his blood. We thank you for his spirit. Uh, Lord, we have so much to be grateful for today, and and that's what we're going to see as we look at this little text today in in, uh, the book of Revelation. So, Lord, I just ask you to bless our study. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. And we will be in chapter number one today, uh, beginning down at verse number nine. Now, I don't know about you, but as I prayed earlier, one of the things that I can't wait for is the day when I can see Jesus in all of his glory. What a day that's going to be. You know, that's been the longing of every believer's heart ever since, since uh, Christ came and died for our sins and the church was created. And we, we all long to see him in his glory. You remember, and I used this text a few weeks back, remember what Philip said. He asked the Lord, he said, as he knew the Lord was about to go to the cross. He knew that the Lord was about to leave this earth. And he said, Lord, just show us the Father. Show us the Father in all his glory, and everything will be fine. We'll be able to handle anything if you'll just give us a real vision of God. That's the same question, really, that Moses asked up on uh, Mount Sinai. He said, Lord, show me your glory. And so Jesus answered Philip, and remember what he said, and I'm reading from John chapter 14, verse number 9. He says, Philip, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me, or who has seen me, has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? That I and the Father are one? And I believe Philip could have answered honestly at that point. He could have said, yes, Lord, I believe that. But that really wasn't enough to satisfy Philip because he wanted to see more than just God and his humanity, and that's what he saw in Jesus Christ. He wanted to see God in all of his glory. And if you remember in that passage later on, 
the Lord begins to pray for the church. And that's one of the things that he prays for, that we would see him one day in his glory. Remember what he said, and I'm reading now from John chapter 17, verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. And, that they, and here's why I want them there. Here's why I want them there. He says that they may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, the glory which you loved me with before the foundation of the world. In other words, bring them to heaven. Bring them to heaven, not so they can see mansions and golden streets and they can see angels and all of these type things. Bring them to heaven so that they can see my glory, the glory which I had before the foundation of the world, so that they can have a real vision of God. No man has seen God at any time except through Jesus Christ. And the Jesus Christ that we read about in the Gospels was Jesus Christ and his humanity. And one day when we see Jesus Christ, we're going to see Jesus Christ in his glory. We're going to have a physical vision of God. Well, Philip died, and I don't think he had that vision until he got to heaven. The other disciples died, and I don't think they had that vision until they got to heaven. Paul, if you remember, Paul did see Jesus glorified. And he was so humbled by the experience. Remember, he was stoned, and he was left for dead in Ephesus, and he went to the third heaven, and no doubt when he was in the third heaven, he saw Jesus in all his glory, and he wouldn't even name his name when he was talking about that vision. He was so humbled by that vision. Well, there was one other apostle who saw Jesus in all his glory, and that was the apostle John. And the really cool thing was this. When he saw him in all his glory, you know what the Lord told him to do? He told him to write it down. Write down what you see. Write down what you see so you can share it with the seven churches in Asia and so that you can share it with the whole church, the church for all time, so that they can have a vision of God. And guess what? We're heading to some really holy ground today because we're going to look at that vision of God that the Apostle John had and what he wrote down, down in Revelation chapter 1, and it's some really exciting stuff. So I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for myself today, that our eyes will be open and that we can see Jesus as John saw Jesus in his glorified body. And so, so let's pick up in verse number 9, and like I say, this is some really exciting stuff, so... Hang with me today. Looking down at verse number 9. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the in the notice, the tribulation. I want to talk about that in a minute. And kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos. And the reason I was there was for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So John begins this passage by introducing himself. And you know what I'm impressed by in this introduction? In no way does he boast about his credentials. I mean, who was John? He was, he was one of the chosen 12, chosen by Jesus Christ to be his apostle, to be his disciple. He laid in the very bosom of Jesus. He was, he was given 
the privilege of writing these letters that are now in our Bible, writing the book of Revelation. He was given this vision that we read about in Revelation. He doesn't even mention that at this point here. Listen to what he says. He says, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation. In other words, what does he do there? He puts himself on the same level as every other believer. Why does he put himself on the same level as every other believer? Because guess what? We're all on the same level. None of us are more important to God than anyone else. You're every bit as important to God as the Apostle John is. Do you realize that? You're, you're his brother. You're a brother of the Apostle John. And he was speaking to these churches and he was calling them his brothers and sisters and his companion in the tribulation. And, and I wish he hadn't used that definite article there because it causes all sorts of problems. Because when he says the tribulation, how do some people take, take that to, what do they take that to mean? They take that to mean the great tribulation. And this is where you get that doctrine of preterism that we talked about earlier. Those people who believe that everything that, that is written about in Revelation was fulfilled in the first century. And they believe that because John says here that we were companions in the tribulation. But he was talking about a different tribulation there. You know, y'all have been around me long enough, and we've talked about this on several occasions. But whenever you interpret the Bible, let me again say this. Context is king. Context is king. You interpret the Bible by context. And if you look at the rest of the Bible and you look at the prophets and the minor prophets, the major prophets, and you look at all the, the, the writings in the New Testament and the Old Testament about the day of the Lord, John was not in the day of the Lord. You read his own book and you'll see that he was not yet in the day of the Lord. The, the tribulation that he was talking about was the tribulation that was brought on by the emperor Domitian. He was a terrible guy. They say that over 40,000 Christians died during that tribulation. Uh, John himself was persecuted by Domitian. He was a very important leader in the church. He doesn't mention that here because of his humility, but he was a very important leader of the church. Tradition says that he was, he was captured and Domitian had him boiled in oil and it couldn't kill him. He was like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he couldn't kill him, and so what he did, he took him and put him on this little island of Patmos. We read that here in the text. He says, and, on the, and I was on the island that is called Patmos for the, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And, and let me back up just a second. There's one other thing that he shares with us in, and that's in the patience of Jesus Christ. Here he was on the Isle of Patmos. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Here he was being persecuted by Domitian. Domitian was trying to shut him down and shut him up. And yet he shared in the tribulation, but he also shared in the patience of Jesus Christ. Now that word patience can be interpreted endurance. It can be uh, uh, interpreted long-suffering. In other words, what he was given is what we're all given as believers. We're given the Spirit of God, and that Spirit is a Spirit of patience. As I've said on many occasions, I don't ask God to teach me patience. That's a terrible prayer to ask, because you're going you're to find out you don't have any real quick. I ask God to give me patience. And where do we get patience? We get patience by the Spirit of Christ. Whatever trial you're going through, the only way you're going to endure that trial with joy and peace 
is if you have the Spirit of Christ, if you're filled with the Spirit of Christ. Now, we all have the Spirit of Christ. We're all given the Spirit of Christ, but when we're filled with the Spirit of Christ, then we have the patience to suffer. And they were suffering things much worse than we could possibly imagine, and yet they had patience to endure this. And here was John, and he'd been boiled in oil, and now he's on the island of Patmos. And uh, that seems like a strange place to me to get a vision. I mean, the Isle of Patmos? Actually, the Isle of Patmos is a little island of Patino. It's a barren island. It's made of volcanic ash. It sits about 20 miles off the coast of Turkey. It's a Greek island. Greeks still claim, lay claim to it. The Turks lay claim to it. And it's just a little piece of barren dust. But they fight over it and threaten to go on a war over it. If you go there today, the only thing that you can do there is see a cave where they will tell you that's where John lived when he was on the Isle of Patmos. Very well might be where he lived because it's the only place you could have lived on the Isle of Patmos. There's nothing there. There's nothing to do there but to look at the sea. Well, all of you, how many of you beachgoers love the beach? Well, if you love the beach, I'm a beach lover. You go to the beach and you love the beach. Let me tell you what, I lived in Destin for two years. You lose your love for the beach over time. It gets really old. I see these people all excited about buying these condominiums in Destin and, and uh, Gulf Shores and all of these places. And then oh, you go there and I'm going to go live, I'm going to retire. And after about a year of looking at the beach, you get sick of the beach. The only thing that John had to do when he was on the Isle of Patmos was to look at the beach and to watch the waves come in and out. I believe that's why he was so excited when he wrote Revelation 21 and he said, and there was no more sea. I didn't have to look at the beach. I won't have to look at the beach ever again. He made a point to say there was no more sea. Now, why was he banished there? He tells us why he was banished there. Look at the text. He says, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Look, if you're ever persecuted, that's why you want to be persecuted. For the word of God, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. For the gospel. And John was teaching the word, and he was persecuted because he was teaching the word. But let me tell you what's more important than teaching the word, he was standing for the word of God. And whenever you stand for the word of God in a lost and dying world, you will suffer persecution. When you stand for Jesus Christ, you are going to suffer persecution. And so John was standing for the word, he was standing for the gospel, and uh, he was, was, was being persecuted. So here was John on this little old island, this barren little island. There might have been a few other prisoners there. I don't think so. I think he was there all by himself. And he was an example of what Domitian, uh, uh, how much power he had. And Domitian wanted to show his power. Here is this elder in the church, the greatest man left alive from the, from the uh, time of Jesus Christ. And it made, really, in my eyes, the greatest man on earth at that time. He was 100 years old, and he's on this island, and, and, and Domitian could say, I've shut him up. I've got him on an island. And that seems to me to be a strange predicament to be in, a strange place to be in, to have a vision. I mean, on this seemingly God-forsaken island, all alone, yet not alone. He wasn't alone. He was about to be in the very presence of God in his glory. You know, there's a great lesson right there, in my opinion. I mean, a barren island isn't such a strange place to have a vision. 
I mean, it's, bare, it's in those barren islands of life that sometimes we come closest to encountering God. I mean, Abraham, remember Abraham, where did he have that great vision of the Lord when he was on Mount Moriah, him and Isaac all alone. In fact, he told his man to stay down there. He was going up there by himself. Jacob, Jacob had the deceiver, the hill catcher. He had these visions of God. Where was he when he had those visions? Remember one, his first vision, Jacob's ladder he had in Bethel, the house of God. Well, the house of God wasn't a city. Bethel wasn't a city at the time. It was a, just a desert. And he was, he, remember, he went to bed and he laid his head on a rock and he had a vision of God. And then when he thought Esau was about to kill him, he got all alone by himself and he, he met God again and he saw the vision of God and he wrestled with God all night. Gideon, I mean, where was Gideon? Gideon was hiding out in a, in a valley in a threshing floor. He, he didn't want anybody knowing where he was at. He didn't want the Midianites knowing where he at, was at. And he had this vision of God. Paul, as I mentioned earlier, he was stoned and left for dead in Ephesus. And there he was taken up to the third heaven and he had a vision of God. So sometimes when it seems you're all alone and you're isolated and you're forsaken, that's not such a bad place to be. You get away from all the noise. You get away from all the, the traffic, all the traffic of life. And you're all alone, yet you're not alone. And you very well might encounter God, because God hasn't forgotten you. You very well might see a vision of God. You never know. So here was John, and looking back at the text, and seemingly he's all alone and he's forsaken. And listen to what happens next, looking down in verse number 10. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Let me tell you something. There's nothing better than to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Here's John. He's all alone. And what's he doing? He's having church. All alone and he's having church. You know, the Bible says where two or three are gathered, the Lord is there. You know, that passage in context of church discipline, so don't, I, I don't even look at that. Where one is gathered, the Lord is there. The Lord will never leave you or forsake you if you're a believer. And I don't care how alone you are. You're not alone. The Lord is there. And so John says, I'm going to have church on the Lord's day. Now, there's debate over what the Lord's day is because you can translate that the day of the Lord. And if you look at the rest of this vision, it seems as if uh, John's vision is he's transported into the future and he sees in, by the Spirit and he sees the day of the Lord. And so a lot of expositors say what he's saying here. I was in the spirit on the day of the Lord. I was taken by the spirit to the day of the Lord. Now here's the problem with that interpretation. The word order, you can translate that the day of the Lord. Because it's possessive and you can translate it as that. But the word order is different from everywhere else in the New Testament where it says the day of the Lord. So I have no doubt he was talking about the Lord's day. And what's the Lord's day? Sunday, this is the Lord's Day. The first day of the week is Sunday. Now, some denominations, like the Seventh-day Adventists, will tell you that the, the church never met on Sunday until uh, after Constantine took over the church and the church became Catholic, then it started meeting on Sunday, but it never did that before. Look, that is pure ignorance and nothing else. 
Because even in the Bible, you see that the church met on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, bring your offerings to the church on the first day of the week. In, in Acts chapter 20, he talks about take breaking bread and, and uh, uh, doing the Lord's Supper. You do it on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And then you look at all the external evidence of the church from the first and second century, and they always bet on the first day of the week. Why? Because that's the day of the resurrection. That's what we're all about. And so the church has always met. The true church has always met on the first day of the week. So that's what he was talking about here. Now, going on, he said, I was in the Spirit. And, you know, we always have the Holy Spirit, don't we? If you're born again, then you've been sealed with the Spirit, so you always have the Spirit. But this day was special. You ever had those days? Have you ever, I I know the worship team can vouch for this. There's days when, man, hey, you know the Spirit's right in the middle of it. There's days when you know he's not. I can, you sitting there, you know sometimes, man, the Spirit of God is speaking to you, and sometimes he's not. Well, this was one of those days, and John was in the Spirit, and, I mean, he was blessing the Lord. He was all excited. I mean, here he was all alone on this island. Uh, You know, life, you know, he was an old man. Life was coming to his end, and yet he was in the Spirit, and he was full of joy, and he was full of peace. And God disrupted him. Look at what he did. And I heard from behind me. Isn't, it, isn't God, he's, he plays jokes sometimes, I think. I mean, he could have come straight forward, but he comes up from behind him. Here's John praising God and worship God. All of a sudden, he hears a voice like the sound of a trumpet. I mean, you picture yourself sitting where you're at right now, and the Lord speaks to you, and the voice comes at you like a sound of a trumpet. You're going to jump out of that seat and probably hit the ceiling up there. He's going to scare you pretty good. And so here he is, and he, and he has this, uh, he hears this voice, and it scares him half to death, and listen to what the voice says. He really doesn't have to say anything but this. Look at the first part of verse 11. I am. That's it. If I hear that behind me, I'm in trouble. I'd die on the spot, I think. I am. What's he mean by I am? I am who I am. It's the almighty God speaking to you. I mean, John's all fired up. He's waving his hand. He's praising God. And all of a sudden you hear a voice at the sound of a trumpet. I am. And I'm sure he, no telling what he did, but he was, it was scary. I am the alpha and the omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. That means the beginning and the end. I'm everything. You go back as far back as you want, I'm there. You go as far forward as you want, I'm there. You go as far back, and I'm the one who's responsible for everything back there. I'm the one who's responsible for everything now. I'm the one who's going to be responsible for everything in the end. And the end never ends with God. The omega is forever. The first, the last. And John doesn't need a theologian to tell him who this is. I mean, he knows right away, this is the great I am. This is God Almighty, God speaking. And look at the next part of the verse. He says, and what you see, what you see now, what you're going to see when I take you into the future, what you see, I want you to write it in a book and send it to the seven churches who are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. In other words, I want you to write down your vision, and I want you to write down the revelation I'm going to give you of the future, 
And I want you to make seven copies of it, and I want you to send it to the seven churches in Asia. Why seven? Because seven is the number of divine completion, divine perfection. And so when he's saying, I want you to write it to the seven churches in Asia, he's saying, I want you to write it to the complete church. I want, this letter's not going to just get out to these seven churches. It's going to get out to all the churches in the world, all the true churches in the world, and it's going to get out to, to all the true churches in the world for all time. Here we are. Think about this. We're here in the 21st century, and we're reading what John wrote down when God told him to write it down. And then John does something I don't know I could have done. I am the Alpha the Omega, the beginning, the end. And he hears that. And it says, the sound of a trumpet. I would have ran, but you've got the sea in front of you. You've got the sea on the other side. I don't know where you go. But John does something that takes a lot of courage. Look at the next part of the verse. Then I turned. You know what the Bible says about seeing God? What's it say about seeing God? No man sees God and lives. So he had, of course, he's 100 years old, but he had much to lose. I mean, I'd be more likely to turn than Nathan would, you know. I mean, I don't have as many years left as he does, so I'd take the risk, maybe. But that took a lot of courage. He turned to see who it was that was speaking to him and what he was speaking. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And he turns very slowly. And what does he see when he turns? He sees God Almighty. God Almighty. That's who he sees. And having turned, well, he also saw something, saw something else. He saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven golden lampstands was one like the Son of Man clothed with the garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. So the first thing he sees are these seven golden lampstands. What do we call those? Menorahs. You've heard of a menorah? You've all seen a menorah? Probably almost exactly, if not exactly like, the ones that Moses was instructed to build for the tabernacle in the wilderness. And remember, Moses was given this pattern that came out of heaven for this. So what John sees here is he's taken into this vision, into this place where he sees God. Then, then I have a hunch, or I'm almost positive, that they're exactly like those menorahs that Moses built in the, uh, for the tabernacle. Let me read to you the instructions that Moses was given. And this is, this is what he was to build, and this is what John saw. He said, you also, and I'm reading from Exodus 25, you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand should be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of the sides. These the three branches of the lampstand lamp out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out the other side. And if you've seen a menorah, you see the three branches on each side. And then you have the main candlestick going up. So you have a total of how many lights? You have seven lights, six branches, uh, and 
the main candlestick, so you have seven lights. And there's seven candlesticks. Why are there seven candlesticks? Divine perfection. The seven candlesticks, what's, what's a candle do? What's it give you? It gives you light. And so these candlesticks are representative of the light of God going out to the seven churches, seven candlesticks with seven can, uh, candles on them, and, and on each candlestick, and so they're going out to all the churches. So this represents light going out to every church, the seven churches of Asia, every church in John's day, and every church throughout time. And let me tell you what, if you're a born-again believer, that candlestick is in your heart. That candlestick, that light of God goes out into your heart. That light of Jesus Christ goes out into your heart. The perfect light of Jesus Christ is shining in your heart. One day, when you see the person next to you in glory, you will actually have a vision of that perfect light emanating from them. Because all the darkness will be gone in that person. I mean, you look around, you've got a lot of darkness hanging out here. I mean, you look up here, you see a lot of darkness. One day, you're going to see nothing but light. That perfect light of God emanating from us, that candelabra in our soul that come, where that light of God, that pure light of God comes forth from us and it goes into every church. That's why there's some scary things when John writes to the churches because he threatens to move their candlestick. And if he removes the light of God from your soul, what is left? Nothing but darkness. And I believe even for non-believers, God's light shines on them from time to time to try to wake up there, to get them to turn from darkness. But men love darkness more than they love light, and so they reject the light, and they're left with what? They're left with nothing but darkness. And if you're in here today and you keep rejecting Jesus Christ, and, and you're not saved, at some point, and obviously if you're rejecting Jesus Christ, you're not saved, but at some point your soul is going to be utterly dark. And you're going to live in an utter darkness forever. That's what hell is. As I said before, it's not the fire in hell that scares me. It's the utter darkness in hell. There is no light forever. But we have that light if we're born again believers. So John sees the, sandal, the seven candlesticks. But let me tell you what, that's not where his focus was. His focus was, was on his vision of God. Look, this wasn't some symbolic picture that John saw. He saw reality here. I mean, when he saw God in his glory, when he saw Jesus in his glory, that's not just a symbolic picture. We're not told this is symbolism here at all. No doubt it's rich in symbolism because the byproduct of who God is is full of symbolism. God is light, and so he sees light. And so, yes, yeah, that's symbolic of some things, but what John is seeing here is an actual vision of Jesus Christ. And look at his vision. And I, I want to I let John take you up on some really holy ground right here, but let me just read the vision in its entirety, and it's just in a few verses here, but look, look at the last part of 13. And let's, last part of verse number 13, and let's, beginning there, he says, 
one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His hair, head and hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire, like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in the furnace. You see a lot of fire here, a lot of light here, don't you? And his voice was as the sound of many waters, as the sound of a trumpet. He described it earlier. He had in his right hand seven stars. We'll talk about those later on, the seven, seven angels or seven messengers. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Wow. That's what he saw. That's what he saw. And I think he was scared to death. We know he was scared to death because you're going to see in the, in the next verse, we're not going to get there today, but when John saw him in verse number 17, he fell as his feet, at his feet as dead. He sees God Almighty. He sees Jesus in his deity. He saw Jesus for years in his humanity. He saw him do miracles that, like, that God could do, but he never saw him in his deity. He got a little bit of taste of it on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he didn't see him in his deity until now. And what does he do? He falls on his feet as dead because he sees Jesus as God. When you see Jesus, you will see Jesus as God. You know, I think there's three ways you see Jesus. You see Jesus in all his humanity. You see Jesus like he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then you see him as the great I am. My hunch is, this is my hunch. You can write it down because it's probably right. <laughs> my hunch is we will see him in all his humanity. I think when we see him in the millennium, it will be like he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He will be, there will be the glory coming forth. But he, we will see his humanity. You'll see the scars on his hand and the scars on his feet. And you'll know that you put him there. But when we go into eternity, this is the way you're going to see Jesus, as God Almighty. Because when we go into eternity, do you realize that there will be no sun? You know why there's no sun? Because his light is so brilliant that there is no night or no sun, no darkness whatsoever. You'll see him in all his glory forever. Is Almighty God. That remember we read that verse in Zechariah? He will be one and his name will be one. That's speaking of eternity. That's speaking of Jesus Christ as Almighty God. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. And one day in eternity, that's what we'll see. And we'll have to be a lot different to be able to be in his presence. I don't know how God protected John in this vision, but 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 he protected him nonetheless. Now, he's frightened. He's very frightened. We see that again in verse number 17. But he takes some comfort. He takes some comfort because he recognizes God. Not as God as Jesus who he saw when he was on this earth before he was crucified. But he does see that he's like the Son of Man. He's not the Son of Man. He doesn't see him as the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. But, he, but John doesn't see him now as the Son of Man. He sees him as God, as Almighty God. 
I mean, the same God who he laid in his bosom, who he saw hanging on that cross, bleeding for the sins of this world. All of a sudden now, he sees him as the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, Almighty God. But he takes comfort in the fact, hey, I know this guy. I recognize something about him. He's like the Son of Man. Why is he like the Son of Man? Because he is the Son of Man. And he is the Son of God. And he is Almighty God. He's wonderfully different. He sees him so wonderfully and magnificently different than he ever saw him. But he's frightened. And he's taken back. Now if you look at that vision in its entirety, what's the most striking thing that you see about Jesus Christ? Don't answer it because you'll probably get it, hopefully you get it right, but I don't want you to get it wrong in front of everybody. What, what I see when I look at that vision, I see his glory. I see his Shekinah glory. I mean, I see the brilliance of his light coming forth from him in every, every part of this vision. I mean, look at this. Going back, look at the vision. His hair was white. As wool. It, he didn't dye his hair white. He didn't get old. It's glowing with light. And it's, it, it, it's like snow. It's white as snow. It's only, I mean, John is writing this down. He didn't have, I wish he'd had a cell phone and he could have recorded this for us and texted it to us today. That'd be great. But all he's doing is trying to describe what he saw and I think he's doing a pretty good job of it. It's, you know, his, his, his hair was like wool, like snow. His feet were in a furnace of fire. You see this fire, this glowing coming forth from his feet. We see this brilliant light everywhere. His garment, I believe, is no doubt is made of light. His face was like the sun. It was glowing like the sun. I mean, whenever you get these visions of God in Scripture or these descriptions of God in Scripture, it's always associated, or I'd say most of the time, if not all the time, associated with this wonderful, pure light. Let me just read you a few. Psalms 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, you cover yourself with light as with a garment. Isaiah chapter 6. You remember Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah had that vision of the Lord? In the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up and the train of his, his glory or his robe filled the whole earth. I mean, and the seraphim and the teraphim were there and each one had six wings. And what did they do? They covered their face. Why did they cover their face? Because they couldn't stand in the midst of his glory. It was so bright that they covered their faces. And the whole earth is full of his glory. If God would open your spiritual eyes right now, you would see that glory. It's everywhere. Doesn't look like it in this dark, dark world, but God has never forsaken this world. That's what's so frightening about the great tribulation. Because in the great tribulation, that which restrains will be removed. That very well might be that glory is removed and nothing but darkness is left. 
That's why I'm 100% sure we're out of here. Because you're not darkness. You got some dark things about you. Don't tell them to me. You got some dark things about you. I got some dark things about me. But also have the light of God in me. Habakkuk chapter 3, we were looking at it Wednesday night. Listen to what he says. His brightness was like the light he had raised, flashing from his hand. And there his power was hidden. His power was hidden in that light, in that great light. Matthew 17, you're all familiar with the story of the great, trans, uh, uh, the, the great transfiguration where it says he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Because they were light. That's what he was wearing was light. Remember when Paul was on the road to Damascus and and he was journeyed near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, coming out of that light, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I think maybe the other great vision we have of the Lord is found over in Daniel chapter 10. Before we turn there, I want to say just one thing. When we go to that passage in Daniel chapter 10, it's going to be a little bit different from the passage in Revelation. Remember I told you in our introduction to the book of Revelation that there are over 500 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, but not one single quote. 500 references, but not one single quote. And when I was studying in seminary, the critics used that as an argument to say, that look, see, the Bible is just a hodgepodge of uh, different things because you got one guy saying it this way and you got one guy saying it that way. You, you, it's like the Gospels. One of them describes an incident different from the way the other one describes an incident. You know, that used to bother me, and I had to ponder that. But you know what? That just proves Scripture to me. You know, it proves to me that what I'm seeing here in Revelation isn't something somebody made up and got a bunch of scriptures to make it up with. It's something he actually saw, and he wrote it down as he saw it. And when Daniel wrote it down, he wrote it down as he saw it. It wouldn't be exactly the same thing, would it? And that's true for all of these things that John quotes. For some, the other reason, John was on the island of Patmos, and I don't know that they gave him a set of scriptures to, to, to read. They probably took it all away from him. And so he was, if he was trying to quote, he was quoting from memory. So he had paraphrased scripture. But everything that John says that we would consider uh, a paraphrase is really him saying what he saw. And, and we looked at it last week. When, when look, look in Revelation chapter 1, look down at verse number 7. He says there, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Well, we looked at that, and that's a quote from Zechariah chapter 12. It seems to be a quote or a paraphrase from Zechariah chapter 12. But John's saying something different. He's saying the same thing, but instead of saying, Zechariah was speaking of that Israel will look on him whom they pierced, John speaks, even broadens the scope, and he says the whole world, every eye will look on him whom they pierced. And so it's meant to be different. That's what I'm trying to say. So you can't criticize it because it's different. I actually am encouraged by the fact that it's different. It actually proves to me that the scriptures are real, that he would say the same thing in a different way and just add some more uh, information 
about what he's saying there. And that's what you see now. Go with me to, with that said, go to, we, to Daniel's vision of the Lord. Now remember, Jesus hadn't come and died for our sins yet. Nobody knew who Jesus was. Daniel didn't, I think, know who Jesus was. But he sees Jesus. He doesn't see Jesus in his humanity. He sees Jesus in his deity. So turn with me to Jan, Daniel chapter number 10. And look down at verse number 2. We're going to have to be here a long time to finish Revelation 1 today. But we, I'm not going to do that to you. But Daniel chapter 10, verse number 2. In those days I, Daniel, was, better word, fasting, three full weeks. Now, that's, that's a long fast, guys. But now it's a, it's a specific fast. He, 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 he ate, he drank, but he didn't drink wine, he didn't drink pleasant food which tells me he might have drank wine when he wasn't fasting. He says, in those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks, fasting three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food and no meat or wine came to my mouth. So he was eating vegetables during that time and drinking water is basically what he's saying. Now, you know what? If you want to have a vision of God, I don't think you knee-jerk God and you say, God, I'm going to have a vision of you and now I'm going to fast for three weeks. That wasn't Daniel's purpose. Why was Daniel fasting? He was fasting because he wanted to hear from God. He wanted to be near God. That's a good thing to do. Take yourself away from the TV set. You don't have to starve yourself. Take yourself away if you drink from the drink. Take yourself away from, from uh, uh, movies and, and, and this world and get yourself along with God. Not to have a vision, but to be close to God. And who knows you might have a vision. Because that's what happened to Daniel here. He says, I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came to my mouth, nor did I anoint myself with oil during that time. I think maybe he didn't take a bath, is what he's saying. So you wouldn't want to have been around Daniel about the third week. Till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the first month, look how exact he is. I was by the side of the great river, that is the river Tigris. And I lifted up and looked and behold a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with the gold of Uphaz. And that was the finest gold in the world. He didn't have gold on him, but he had the finest gold he had ever seen around him. He was girded. His belt was this, was this belt of gold. This certain man that he saw was one like the son of man. He sees him and he's like a man. Just like John said, like the son of man. And his body was like beryl. I might mispronounce that, but it doesn't matter. Basically, that's a stone, almost like a diamond, like a green diamond. And I'm sure uh, Blair wants us now to see her diamond. I'm joking. She doesn't want us to do that. But you take, you, you look at a diamond. You look at Blair's diamond in a really good light. And, and you don't see the diamond. What do you see? You see the light that comes forth from that diamond. Unless it's a zirconian. And then you won't see that. But beryl is a beautiful stone. And that light, what he's trying to describe is that this light was coming forth from this stone. It wasn't the stone that impressed him. It was like beryl. It was like light, these beautiful shades of color of light coming forth from this stone. And he says his face was like the appearance of lightning. 
Now, we all know in Louisiana about lightning. We've seen a lot of lightning lately, haven't we? I mean, if, if you get lightning, if it strikes within a couple of hundred feet of you, let me tell you what, it'll light your face up. It's a strong light. And his whole fight, face was like lightning and his eyes like torches of fire and his arms and feet like burnished bronze. In other words, feet on fire. And, and his eyes were like torches of fire. All this light coming forth. He sees the same thing and the sound of his words were like a voice of a multitude. It was like a trumpet. And I, Daniel, alone. Alone's a key word there. John was alone. You want to see the Lord, you've you got to be alone. You've got to get away by yourself. You want to see the Lord with your spiritual eyes, you've got to get away by yourself. You're not going to see the Lord. You're not going to see the Lord normally in a group. You've got to get alone. You're not going to hear from the Lord. Same thing about hearing from the Lord. You're not going to hear from the Lord if you don't get alone with the Lord. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me. They, they did not see the vision. They just ran. Because great terror, terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. So, what's Daniel see? He sees brilliant, brilliant light. What's John see? Brilliant, brilliant light. And, and it's got to be something more than what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration because he would have said it was like the Mount of Transfiguration. It was just like he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. They weren't taken back that much on the Mount of Transfiguration like John is here. So this is much more a situation where the Lord is appearing in his total glory, the glory that he had before the foundation of the world than it was than he appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration because he was just like Moses and just like Elijah. But what is this light? When we see God's light, what do we see? You know what we see? We see his, the very essence of God. The very essence of God. His very being. God is light. And in his light, it, it's not symbolic. It's who he is. In his light is his majesty, his holiness, his purity, his power. And his love. And then he had this golden band wrapped around his waist. More brilliant and beautiful than the gold of Uphaz. The most finest gold in the world. And he had this wrapped around his waist. And I believe it was a band of golden light. A band of golden light that represents his divinity and his majesty. Why? Because God is light. God is light, John says in 1 John chapter 5. Have you, he wrote that, most people believe he wrote 1 John after he wrote Revelation. And boy, he could say it with, with vigor. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. None. None. You know, I've shared my salvation experience with you all before, but you're probably bored with it, but I'm going to do it again anyway. Whenever I get a passage like this, it just brings me back to that day. This week, it'll be 
28 years ago, August 23rd, 1989. I was in New Mexico, and I went out in the desert, and I believe God told me to go out in the desert, and I was all alone. Got to get alone. I was all alone. And I had a vision while I was out there of the glory of God. I didn't see God like Daniel saw God or like John saw God. I just got a taste of his glory. Just a few moments of his glory. Like crumbs off the heavenly table. Fell down from earth. He op God opened my eyes and I could see his glory. And it encompassed me. It encompassed me body and soul. And I physically felt God's, I mean, I was a pretty rotten guy at that point, but I felt the holiness of God, and I wanted that so bad. I felt the purity of God, and I wanted that so bad. I felt the power of God, in a good sense, power. Power that I felt at that point I could do anything. I could overcome everything. My life was a mess. I was, I was, it destroyed everything around me. But I felt the power of God to overcome that. I felt that power. I mean, I just didn't, didn't read it in the Bible. I felt that power. But you know what I felt most of all in that light that encompassed me? I felt the love of God. The very love of God. And his majesty. And his divinity. I walked away from there knowing Jesus Christ is God Almighty and I was changed forever. Now I've regressed some since then. But you know what? I, after 28 years, I can go back to that day. And I know that one day, that little momentary experience that I had is going to be my eternity. I'm going to be filled with that light in that power, in that love, forever and ever and ever. Amen. You know, I've said this before too. I don't believe that anybody, anybody gets saved without having a vision of God. You're not going to get saved unless you have a vision of God. Now, you might not see God with your physical eyes. You might not feel the presence of God. But to get saved, you've got to see him. You've got to see him in his word. You've got to see him in your heart. You've got to see him with your spiritual eyes. You've you got to have a vision of God. And that's why the Bible says, no one calls me Lord except by the Spirit of God. No one knows that Jesus is Lord unless they've been given the Spirit of God and they've had a vision of God. Flip with me to one last passage and I'm going to get you out of here. 
But go, go with me to Matthew. Chapter 4, which is quoting Isaiah chapter 9. Jump down to verse number 14. Matthew chapter 4, verse 14. And he says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the land of the Gentiles, that's what you were before you were saved. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus wasn't shining back then, but they had a vision of Jesus. They saw a great light. When you see Jesus, you, you, light comes into your soul. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. That's how you get saved. That's exactly how you get saved. The light comes on. You see the light of God. You have a vision of Jesus Christ. You see exactly who Jesus Christ is. I mean, and, and that's what I would ask everybody in this room. Have you really ever had a vision of God? I mean, has the light of God dawned in your soul? Because if it's never dawned in your, he's never dawned in your soul, then you're not saved. But look, if you haven't had a vision of God, he's waiting and he's yearning to show you all of his glory. All you have to do to have a vision of God is come out of the darkness. Repent. Turn. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to get better. You don't have to do anything. You just have to come out of the darkness and out from the shadow of death. And you come to God and you do that. You come out of the shadow of death and you choose to come out of darkness and I promise you that one way or the other you will have a vision of Jesus Christ. And when you have that vision, you will see him as none other than God Almighty. That's who he is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We, we thank you for the vision that you've placed in our heart of who you are. Lord, this vision written down to us by the Apostle John and Lord made real to each one of us who know you by your spirit. Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, Lord... It, the, all they have to do is make a choice to repent and come out of the darkness to come into your marvelous light. And Lord, you'll give them a vision like they've never seen, a vision of you and all of your glory, of who you are, Almighty God, El Shaddai, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. Father, we just thank you for who you are in Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.